This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Travel Texas. Texas is big, it's open, it's pretty, it's full of land and open views. And then I get down and I'm in this like beach town and I'm like, what happened? Like, I'm still in Texas. This is incredible. This is fly fishing guide Lael Johnson, who recently visited coastal Texas. I mean, clean beaches, awesome people, crazy sunsets, and of course, some banger fishing. Texas is so many things. A vast landscape of culture, regions, destinations, and activities, including 350 miles of coastline. I mean, I, I did so much stuff, sailing, fishing, stand-up paddleboarding, doing yoga on it, beach walks, like eating the incredible seafood, kayaking, like the bird washing was crazy. And I'm sure I know I did not see everything that was to offer down here. Travel Texas offers an online trip builder that allows you to choose from different Texas activities to generate a custom trip matched to your unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash own to get the trip to Texas that really matters. Yours. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. There are a number of reasons that I love winter. Skiing, holiday gatherings, eggnog. But the thing that really gets me every year is the sky. The light in winter is magic. Because while the days are short, sunrises and sunsets are longer, especially around the solstice. Plus, when there aren't storms, there's less humidity, and the air is often cleaner, meaning no haze. The result is sunsets that are, well, walk outside and see for yourself, if you haven't already. Of course, it gets a lot better than sunsets. Clear winter nights make for spectacular displays of the aurora borealis, or northern lights. Something that truly feels like magic. Today, we're replaying an episode from a few years ago by Peter Frick Wright that really might change how you feel when you see something beautiful in the sky. It sure did that for me. Here's Peter. Writer David Woolman has been talking to scientists about the aurora, and this is how scientists describe it. Aurora borealis is caused by nonstop nuclear fusion on the sun. As these unimaginably huge and powerful events are happening all the time on the sun, they send charged particles out into space that come zooming toward Earth. Those electrons and protons will smash into oxygen, nitrogen, uh, and other molecules in the upper atmosphere. And those collisions uh, emit visible light. And it's usually this icy green, but there are reports of seeing lots of other colors. I certainly saw a lot of pink. But it's really this kind of crystal, ice, super cool, uh, neon green. But David's story isn't about how the aurora works. His story is about photographer Hugo Sanchez, who describes the aurora this way. I would say, you know, it's just magical. It's, 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 It's the sky, it's the sky dancing. So it's like, 
There is nothing like it. It's, it, it's just unreal. Hugo is a custodian at an elementary school who takes photos of the Aurora in his spare time. David is a contributing editor with Outside, so he's always kind of looking around for interesting people to write about. But he didn't start out looking to write about a Hugo or the Aurora Borealis. When David started out, he was trying to write about Steve. I first got interested in it because of this Aurora-related phenomenon I was reading about that has been nicknamed Steve. And I can't remember what it stands for, but of course, a bunch of Canadians came up with it. Steve is a phenomenon that you can see in roughly the same places that you can see the Aurora Borealis. And to the average bystander, it kind of looks like Aurora. But to experts, or passionate amateurs, it's completely different. So different that its name comes from a scene in the animated film Over the Hedge, when a group of animals encounter something completely unknown. I would be a lot less afraid of it if I just knew what it was called. Let's call it Steve. Steve? It's a pretty name. Steve sounds nice. Yeah, I'm a lot less scared of Steve. It's very similar to Aurora, but it is definitely not Aurora, and it has this neat scientific backstory because, as far as I understand, some citizen scientists or Aurora enthusiasts were spotting this phenomenon and making some kind of claims that it was not exactly Aurora, but it's still this neat lines or columns of visible light. Turns out, Steve is the result of electrons entering the ionosphere, which creates friction and heat, causing particles in the atmosphere to glow. But back in 2016, no one knew that. Blah, 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 there was some back and forth. I think they were poo-pooed by the scientific community. And then lo and behold, it turns out they're right. And it's this neat but slightly different thing. And that's not what this story is about at all. not at all what this story is about. But this wonderful thing about journalism and story hunting. What the story is about is a photographer that David discovered when he started emailing with a NASA researcher. We got to talking a little bit about Steve. And what happened is... In a magazine article, in like like a popular science type magazine, I saw a picture of Steve, but it was actually a self-portrait of a guy dressed in like all white, in like a painter's suit, out in the snow with his tripod, shooting pictures of the Aurora and or Steve. And I thought, who the hell's that guy? Uh, I have. I always had crazy ideas. I call them crazy ideas, but it's that's that's the name that I give it. But uh, I had an idea one day. That guy was, of course, Hugo Sanchez, out taking this otherworldly photo of himself in what looked like kind of a spacesuit, with the aurora glowing all around him. And David thought to himself, "This guy might have a story." Hugo wasted no time, as far as telling me his life story and welcoming me into what I thought was an incredible story. Hugo's story, it turns out, is a story of why people go out on terrible, frigid nights to shoot pictures. And it has nothing to do with Steve or electrons in the ionosphere. Hugo was out there because the sky was dancing and he needed some magic. So Hugo Sanchez grew up uh, in San Salvador, in El Salvador's capital, and, you know, by his accounts, up until he was 10 or 11 or 12, he had a very happy childhood. Went to school, like, every day, and I and my parents were, like, married, and there's uh, seven brothers, and, and I'm number eight. You know, the family would 
buy our watermelon on the way to the beach on the weekend and um, come home with crab and fish. And we played soccer like every other kid. And then from age 12 or so and for the next decade, his life was really defined by the civil war that gripped the country. Since 19, so I had like a normal 10 years of my life, like you say, like kids, what kids do and all that stuff until like 1980. And that's when the civil war started in El Salvador. So that changed many things. You know, as Hugo told me as a kid, when you're 12 years old, at first he was more fascinated than frightened. You know, the fighting was pretty distant. And he told a little anecdote about going to visit his grandma and he and his cousins would sit on a hillside and watch the gunfire from helicopters and stuff on a distant mountain, you know, and it's this kind of peculiar image of Hugo looking up at the sky and sort of dazzled in in a completely different way. As Hugo grew up, however, things kept getting worse. The fighting moved from distant hillsides to the streets outside his house. Things were getting, like... As, as I was getting older, they were getting tougher and tougher because, uh, like I said, you know, I did not want to be, I'm against violence, right? So I never wanted to be um, in the army. I, I, I never wanted to be on, like, the guerrillas either, right? So at what point did you start thinking about leaving? So, so what happens is uh, along the way, I found, you know, I was, I was young. Yeah, I was 18 years old, but I found, you know, these, these, these one girl, you know, like that I loved. And then we, we had a kid and, um, we got married. We had a kid and I was just 18 years old. And, but we still didn't want to leave. And so at first, you know, they thought they could kind of ride it out, but then they knew of different people who were fleeing. And his wife's mother was already in Canada. And through their church, they started, once things just, the walls were closing in too much on him, he could tell that they had to get out of there. He was the end of 1989. So 1990, we apply. And it wasn't like an overnight thing or rushing for the border. There's still like paperwork and medical exams and just everyday bureaucracy um, steps that are required before they could finally get residency in in Canada. But then they flew, you know, 3,000 miles north to start a new life in Edmonton, Alberta. He was going in search of a better life for his daughter. But a better life for himself was going to be a stretch. Because at the time, he was basically a kid, starting over in a new country, without any connections or skills or a firm grasp on the language. Even his wife's family, which is the whole reason they were in Canada, they were leaving them on their own. Like the mom was here, the uncles and, and all that, and all those people were here, but they were not being helpful. Well, we're new. We don't know this. We don't know that. We don't, we don't know anything. So it's like, in a way, you need somebody to, you know, grab your hand and hold you and say, well, this is like this, this is like that. How long did it take to start to feel a little a little bit at home? Or has it ever happened, uh, you feel, at home in Edmonton? Well, you know, like, for me, it was different, right? I, I got used to, um, like, everything more than my ex-wife. 
Hugo says that as the provider for the family, he had to assimilate. It was a matter of survival. So he did it. His wife, he says, didn't adapt as well. After having, I had my daughter, right? Over the years, I have another son. And then, you know, like things between my ex-wife didn't go well. And we ended up like uh, breaking up and we got divorced, right? So uh, after like, you know, so many years living together. So it was the end of uh, my story with her. So now, you know, I was single for, you know, a few, you know, certain time. I can't remember two years, three years, whatever it was. So I then I met uh, Emilio's mom. He meets a woman named Jamie uh, and they fall in love. And um, about a year later, they have a son named Emilio. But unfortunately, right from birth, it's very clear that Emilio's uh, condition is incredibly serious. He was born with this kind of 10-car pileup of developmental disorders. Uh, so he's rushed into emergency, emergency surgery right away uh, for surgery on his, uh, I think, his trachea and his abdomen. Uh, and through the, the following five months or so, he doesn't even leave the hospital for five months um, he endures more surgeries and it becomes clear that he, you know, he will never walk or talk or eat independently. Um, his vision and his hearing are severely impaired. Just before we go any sort of further in time, I was wondering if you could tell me just a little bit about Emilio. Um, like, uh, you know, what was he like? I mean, it sounds like he had profound developmental problems, but I guess what what are your memories of him? Well, you know, uh, he was he couldn't talk, right? He couldn't he couldn't talk, but he, he, but you could see these you could see this sweet little boy, like he was. It's not because he's my son, but he was. So handsome, like, like his hair, uh, uh, and and almost he wanted to. You could tell he wanted to communicate and and say something, but he couldn't. One of Hugo's really good friends, who also had a child with a similar condition. He told me that having having a child like this is like trying to tread water with an anchor around your neck. It's, it's, it's hard on the family. It's hard for the kids, for the other kids that you have, if you have any. It's hard for the wife. It's hard for the husband. It's hard for everybody. So, and, and we, couldn't, we couldn't cope with uh, Emilio's sickness and all that stuff. So we ended up breaking up. And Emilio had to go to live in a clinic. So Emilio goes to live in a place called Rosecrest. And it's difficult on both the parents, but I think for Hugo, it provided a little bit of an opportunity to to go back to living just a little. And at that time, or really by that time, Hugo had already really fallen in love with photography. 
I bought a camera. I'm not going to say I became a photographer. I bought a camera to take photos. He went out to a park and in typical Canadian fashion, he started taking pictures of Canada geese. <laughs> and, um, um, and he even says it with a laugh, like, you know, typical stuff that any amateur photographer is, you know, icy. Yeah, you start walking around with a camera. Icy pond, birds flying, bird perching, yeah. goose, geese swimming, whatever, just simple stuff. He kind of makes fun of his, his early years photography. So and then I'm, I'm, as I'm learning new things, I love taking photos at night. So I remember one day, there was a meteor shower. So he goes out to try and take pictures of the meteor shower, and he, he comes back, uploads his pictures, completely came up empty. Nothing. But accidentally, he did capture the Aurora Borealis in one of these images, just faintly. So I took photos of the northern lights without knowing that I was taking photos. That was his first photo of the Aurora. But the moment that really changed everything came later. We'll be right back. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. So before the break, Hugo Sanchez had gotten a camera and started taking photos of the Aurora. But it had been on accident. He didn't really see the Aurora until he was driving back to Edmonton from Calgary with Jamie, Amelia's mom. They'd split up, but were still on good terms. So we went there, but on the way back, we we saw the most amazing northern lights. I never seen I've seen so many auroras at so many shows, but I never seen nothing like it. It was just oh it was amazing. You could almost touch it. You it was, it was just incredible, you know, just it was the light that went, I don't know. I, I don't know where it went, but it's in my heart, in my soul. I don't know. But he was like, wow, that's 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 something that I want to see again. Like, I'm looking forward to see this again. And he's really hooked, like, right away by this idea. He gets online. He starts researching Aurora, learning about the science takes out books from the library about taking pictures at night. I went and I started like looking, you know, for YouTube tutorials about Northern Lights and settings and all that stuff. But another reason why I'm doing Auroras, that's because Emilio is half native. Emilio's mom, Jamie, is Cree First Nations. And she told Hugo that in the Cree tradition, the aurora is believed to be the spirits of dead ancestors dancing in the night sky. And this idea became even more important to their family when Emilio died. He was 10 years old. He loved watching TV. He was just, you know, there enjoying cartoons. And and, and actually, when he died, he was watching a movie. And he was watching 
Kung Fu Panda and, uh, and he passed away like I know I believe, I know about science I know this now I know the science behind it I know why they're created and all that stuff but as a belief for me that's that ancestor it's Emilio dancing for me after losing Emilio Hugo missed his son pretty bad He wanted to feel closer to him, but how? Science couldn't much help with that question, but the Aurora could. On one of his first nights out taking photos after Emilio passed away, Hugo snapped a picture, and when he looked at it, he dropped to his knees. And I was crying. I was like crying. It's like, I can't believe it. And in that photo that I took, there is an angel in that photo. It was the Aurora dancing into the shape of an angel on his camera sensor. An angel that, I gotta say, kind of looks like a little boy. I only have one angel, right? You know, which is Emilio. It's like this little boy who craved attention in life still wanted it after life. And he got it. How much time do you would you say that you spend uh, photographing the Aurora? Well, you know, it's like I'm so in love with Aurora that if every day comes out, I would go every day. Okay. Um, so every time the sky is clear, I go. And after learning all this about Hugo, David Woolman decided he wanted to go too. So I wanted to see if we could go catch it together in Alaska. And... Outside editors said yes, which was great. They started their trip in Anchorage and actually caught a decent show of Northern Lights their first night out at an old mine. But it wasn't quite the magical display that made Hugo feel like Emilio was there with him. You know, he had mentioned to me sort of how he likes to talk to Emilio when he sees the Aurora. And I had asked him something to the effect of like, is this like the kind of time when you would talk to Emilio? And and he kind of looked and laughed. He's like, no, 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 this, this is nothing. Like, it has to be legit. David wanted to see Hugo in action, photographing the night sky and communing with the memory of his son. But a huge part of chasing Aurora is waiting around, doing nothing at all. The way it works with Aurora chasing is if you're working with a guide, uh, he or she will be watching the forecast and maybe 9.30 or 10 o'clock, give you a call or send you a text about, like, it's dumping snow outside and it's supposed to snow another feet and you could never see the sky, like, at all. You should just go to bed and have a nice night and let's connect tomorrow. Or things are looking half decent, et cetera, right? They're going to give you their own kind of unvarnished assessment of whether it's worth it to take a shot. And Hugo was always wanting to go. I mean, his view was... The only guarantee is that you're not going to see it if you don't get your ass out there. You can think of Hugo's story as a beautiful tribute to his son. He braves the cold and skips whole nights of sleep because the aurora makes him feel close to him again. But when David got to Alaska, there was more to it than that. He always wanted, he he wasn't just game for aurora, he was game for anything. 
like, should we ride the tram at that ski area just to do it? Sure. Let's, let's go do it. You know, you want to ride old snowmobiles and yes, let's, let's go do it. And there's this hot springs place. Oh yeah. I love hot springs. And cause you kind of have a lot of time to kill during the day. And, and I should add, you know, I- so when, when David was describing this trip, he told me that you're always up for anything. You're, you're just palpably having fun and enjoying yourself. And I guess I just wonder where that comes from. Photography. It cleans my soul, right? So all the problems, all the pains, all all the sorrow, it's there. Like, you know, it's, it's a way out. It's like, I don't want to have this weight. So I need to find a way to get it out. And by me, like doing photography, me doing all these things, like I'm like transforming all the bad stuff, all the bad vibes, all the all the negativity and all the hard times and, and the struggles, I'm trying to, I'm making them in a good way. Hmm. And are you saying that the fact that you can go do this photography and, and sort of, you know, clean, clean your soul, as you say, are you saying that leaves you open to these experiences or are you saying these experiences are part of are part of the kind of cleansing and getting rid of the of the bad vibes. Yes, I I would say both because um, at the same time I'm 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 cleaning I'm like I'm trying to be happy. Let's say I'm trying to be happy. I'm trying to be uh, not to think about something that I can't change. Uh, at the same time, I'm looking for an opportunity to to. To, to do better I, I, I want to show because I also want to show the people that it doesn't matter what's going on in your life it's like you can make it better right because uh, I'm not going to cry and, 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 and instead of me crying I'm going to go and, and do something positive out of something negative Almost like you're turning tears of sadness into tears of joy when you do cry. Right. It was about a week into the trip, near an old mining town called Weissman, that Emilio finally showed up. So we're there waiting, we're kind of walking around, and then I'm, I'm, my eyes are in the sky. David is like, you know, talking to a person, he's getting info, but my eyes are in the sky. And as soon as I see the aurora one point that is coming out, I was like, oh, here it is. Yeah. Look at that. Oh my gosh. Eat your heart out, rainbows. Do you remember I said, no, maybe? I said, we will. Look. He goes, Aurora Whisperer. Now I can talk. Like, that's why I always told you. What's that? I said, that's, that's what I told you. What? That what? Now that I can, now I can talk. Oh, uh, now you can say it. Yes. <laughs> now I can say, you know, I'm happy to see you, Emilio. Miss you, buddy. You know I love you. Mom loves you too. So. 
Thanks for everything you're doing lately. So, big hugs, big kisses. I love you, buddy. This episode was written and produced by Peter Frick Wright and David Woolman and based on David's feature for Outside, the man who chases auroras to push away darkness. You can read that story on Outside Online. It includes some amazing aurora photographs by Hugo Sanchez. Music for this episode by Robbie Carver. The Outside Podcast is made possible by our Outside Plus members. Learn more about the many benefits of membership and join us at OutsideOnline.com slash pod plus.